Good morning, church. In Genesis 8:20 through 9:22, God speaks to us in his word. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man, shall his blood be shed. And for God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the, in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, ben likes to give me passages like this and then go on vacation. So if you want to honor your pastor when you see him next, um, you can tell him thanks from me as well. We've got an interesting passage of scripture in front of us this morning. But um, I think a really clear word from God. If you're visiting with us or you have not a good long-term memory, let me give you 30 seconds of like 
a flyover of where we've been, and then I want to tell you what we're not doing this morning. Then I'm going to pray for us, and we'll get into this text together. We've been together for, man, like nine weeks now in Genesis 1 to 11. We're going to wrap that right as Advent starts, I guess. And uh, the questions we've been asking are like, who are we? Why are we here? What's wrong in the earth? What's God doing? How does what's broken get fixed? And these are the big picture questions that God gives us in the entirety of Genesis, but specifically in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. He gives us a cosmology, right? A theologically ordered understanding of who we are and why we're here and what God's doing in our universe. So that's, that's the big picture. And let me tell you, in service of that big picture, what I'm not going to do this morning, okay? I'm not going to address general ethics. And I say that because if you look at verses 5 and 6 of Genesis chapter 9, lots of people use these verses to make really passionate defenses of or arguments against stuff like capital punishment and euthanasia and abortion and whether or not Christians should fight in war. There's really like defined and aggressive ethical positions that people base on this passage of Scripture. And I think you have to reckon with this passage of Scripture to build lots of ethical positions. But I don't think this passage is conclusive enough in and of itself to build this strong ethical argument. Neither do I believe that's the point that the author of Genesis was trying to make as they unfolded this for us. So we're not going to talk about ethics at all. And the other thing we're not going to talk about is slavery. If you look at verse 25, it's outside of our reading, but we're going to finish chapter 9 today. Um, Christians have done really weird things in the past, trying to trace the lineage of Canaan in particular ways and trying to take a biblical curse and act as if that's a mandate. And I'm, I'm thankful that I don't, I don't think there's any scholars or tribes of people now that would use this passage of scripture to defend slavery but I think it's helpful for us to acknowledge that there have been Christians in the past that have propped up really wicked ideas about humanity in general from this place in Genesis and if nothing else that could be a helpful reminder for us that um, it, it is our inclination to arrange the Bible around stuff we already think or believe instead of arranging what we think or believe around what God says to us in his word. And none of us have a flawless interpretation of the scripture. So we need to regularly just submit ourselves to God in his word and say, hey, where are we off? Where are we out of alignment? Where are we using your word to justify fleshly, selfish endeavors? Um, but we're not talking about that. Do you, guys, do you guys like a beginning introduction of a sermon of like, here's what we're not doing? So take a deep breath. We've had a long passage of scripture read. Those are things we're not doing. Here's the three things that I just, I hope will hit. This is my intention, whether or not we do this or, or not, or is yet to be seen, I guess. I want us to see in this passage a new beginning for humanity. God brings Noah out of the flood and we see a new beginning for humanity. We see Noah bring him, bringing with him something old from humanity that is destructive and caustic and a problem. So we see a new beginning and we see an old thing which is sin. And then in light of the new beginning and old sin, we see an everlasting covenant that God makes for all the inhabitants of the earth. Let's pray really quickly and uh, we'll dive in. God, it's actually just a delight to be able to say your name. 
It's a delight to be able to say your name, to be able to call upon your name, to be able to sing praises to your name, and your word tells us that we can hide in your name. And though we're inclined to build names for ourselves, your word tells us that the only name worthy of glory is your name. And the only name that's sufficient to hold us up is your name. So I ask now that you would um, let us see you and your world rightly. Give us eyes to see you and give us hearts to love you. And would you build us up now through your word? I ask in Jesus' name and for his glory and all God's people said, amen. All right, we see a new beginning, an old sin, and an everlasting covenant. Right from the jump, in the passage that was read from us in the end of Genesis chapter 8, we find ourselves in the wake of the flood. And whether you were here last week or not, it's important to realize that in the flood, God systematically reverses all the things he had done at creation. The flood is a, like a focused, systematic reversal of all of his blessings in creation. And the point of the flood was God was trying to undo or reverse the effects of the curse and provide a new template in which humanity can experience his blessings. And everything in our passage this morning like the author intentionally unfolds in such a way where we're thinking about the renewal of God's original creation, the recreation of God's intended purposes, the renovation of things. We have here a new beginning. I would call it a new creation because that's what it is, except for we have this theological category of the new heavens and the new earth as new creation. And so this isn't a world without sin, but it is in many senses a new creation. It's probably better to call it a recreation or a new beginning. And I want you to notice what the author lays out for us to remind us that this is a new beginning. We have Noah presented to us as a new Adam. We have Noah functioning in verse 20 of chapter 8 in a new temple. In our time together in Genesis 1 and 2, we talked about how Eden is described according to the language of a temple because God's purpose from the foundation of the earth forward was to create a place where his glory would dwell. And the mission given to Adam and Eve was to expand the boundaries of Eden so that the glory of God would cover the face of the earth like the waters cover the sea. Eden was, for every practical purpose, a temple. And now we see Noah, this new Adam, building a new altar to signify that this new beginning is again a new place for the glory of God to dwell. We see God making a new commission for Noah and his family. Look at verse 1 of Genesis chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is repeated also in verse 7 of Genesis chapter 9. And if this sounds familiar to you, it's because it's a direct reiteration of Genesis 1.28. The same commission that God gives to Adam, he gives to Noah. And then just like God had given uh, Adam provisions, here in verse 3, he gives Noah provisions. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. This is a recapitulation 
like a retelling, a reenactment, a renewal of what God did in the first creation with Adam and Eve. And what I want us to like see and take note of and long for as we read the scriptures, we're gonna see this throughout Genesis, and this actually gets projected and writ large over the entire Old Testament is, there is this like replaying of the same events and the same commissionings over and over again. The commissioning that God gives to Adam, he gives to Noah. The commissioning that God gives to Noah, he gives to Abraham. The commissioning that God gives to Abraham, he gives to Abraham's sons. The commissioning that God gives to Abraham's sons, he gives to Israel as a corporate entity. And what we see in each instance is, as God commissions these people to trust him and bless the nations of the earth through their trust in him, each one of these people fail. Adam fails. Noah fails. In our very chapter, Noah fails. Abraham fails. Abraham's sons fail. Israel fails. What we, what we should be longing for, I hope, as we read the scriptures is like, God, where is there someone who will actually take you at your word and get it right? Where is there someone who will hear your word and say, I choose your wisdom over my own. I choose your provision over my own. Creation has been crying out since Genesis 3 for Jesus. And even in, even in Noah's failure, I pray what you see is like, I would have failed just like him. Where is someone, oh God, that can be faithful to your commandments and to your promises? And there is one coming, the Bible tells us. From the curse, there is one coming, the Bible tells us. That will make right what we have messed up so catastrophically. Let me let the cat out of the bag for you. It ain't going to be Noah. Noah's going to fail just like Adam. And just like all the people that had failed so significantly that God decided he wanted to start over on this project. So, so think about new beginning. New Adam, new temple, new provisions, new commissions. And I want you to notice in verses 3 and 4, there's new stipulations just like Adam and Eve were told, hey, everything in this garden is yours. Just don't eat from this tree. It's not as if that tree were the problem. What God was doing is he was identifying the boundaries of his authority and the nature of trust. So what God was saying to Adam and Eve when he said, you can eat from all these things, just not that, is trust me. Every commandment we encounter in the scriptures is God lovingly saying to us, trust me. Hey, trust me. And so just like he said to Adam and Eve, he says to Noah and his family, trust me. But it's worth noting in verse 3 that the new provisions in this new beginning, this newly recreated earth, include meat. Can I get an amen from someone in the room? Like this there's, there's human, human diet contains meat now. And God talks about the blood of the animals that we eat. He says, hey, these are animals that you should have killed, meaning you shouldn't eat things that you find dead on the side of the road, much to the chagrin of a boss I had when I was in high school that loved to bring things to work that he found roadside and talk about how he was gonna prepare them for his family that night for dinner. Yeah, you can feel uncomfortable there, because I did, that was gross. We see right here God lovingly addressing the rednecks and hillbillies among us in Genesis chapter nine, all the way back after the flood. He says, don't eat roadkill. 
And then he tells us in verse 4 that the animal should have been killed. Now what he's talking about is he's not forbidding that we eat rare meat. Or he's not telling us we violate his commandments if we don't let meat rest long enough. There, there was a tendency you can imagine, this is as weird and dark as roadkill, in the ancient world where you didn't have refrigeration, that you try to keep the animals that you're eating alive for as long as possible. So that there would be a temptation to like hack off part of this animal and see if you can keep it alive till tomorrow so you could keep eating this thing. God says, don't do that. He's actually making provisions for stewardship of creation, even in these stipulations for how we eat animals. But he's doing something more than that. He's telling us something about how life functions when we consider the nature of blood. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 23, we see that blood is the life force in the imagination of people in the ancient world. It says, only be sure that you do not eat the blood, not because blood's bad, but blood is the life force, and you shouldn't eat the life with the flesh. Old Testament scholar John Walton explains what God's doing in this way. He says this, ritually speaking, the draining of the blood before eating the meat was a way of returning the life force of the animal to God who gave it life. This offers recognition that they have taken the life with permission and are partaking of God's bounty as his guests. Its function is not unlike that of the blessing said before a meal in modern practice. God is essentially not just giving principles of good stewardship and cleanliness and health. He's saying, I'm setting up rituals so that you can acknowledge in every piece of meat you eat where this meat came from. He's also talking about the blood of animals because he's going to make a shift to the blood of men. Look at verses 5 and 6 of Genesis 9. This may sound strange to some of you guys. It may feel like a weird flex from talking about dinner to talking about murder. But that's exactly what God does. Read with me verses 5 and 6 of Genesis 9. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it and from man. Strange parenthesis there, right? It's essentially saying that God will require a reckoning from animals who kill people. I'm not sure how that gets worked out in the courts of heaven. But he says, from every beast that kills a man, I'll require a reckoning. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Why such a quick move from proper preparation of dinner to murder? Does that, does that not strike any of you strange? Or here's another way to frame it. Like, why talk about murder to Noah and his family now? I thought God had wiped all the wicked people off the face of the earth. I, I thought Noah was a righteous man and God had delivered him because of his righteousness, because of his faith, because of his trust. If, if God has delivered the righteous man, and I put that in quotes, and wiped out all the wicked people, why does he need instructions about murder at all? The fact of the matter is because Noah was carrying something inside of him that was capable of murder. If you want to be even clearer about it, Noah was carrying murder inside of him. Because we think about what all God put in the ark when he loaded up the ark with Noah. And because Noah was on the ark, 
Noah was bringing sin with him, right? There's an activity that you do for kids in kids' church. Tons of people talk about this. Tons of authors have written about this. I've never personally done this, but if we don't do this at Frontline, I think we should because I think it's a fun lesson. You sit the kids down, and to get kids beyond the flannel graph nature of the biblical stories, we actually present the story of Noah. We talk about the ark. We talk about God's purposes in the earth. We talk about sin and judgment. And then we invite the kids to tell us, what, what did Noah bring on the ark? And they're like, oh, oh, zebras, zebras. Yep, he brought zebras. What else? Donkeys, cows, chickens, goats. You let the kids name all the things they want to name. What else did Noah bring with them? Uh, 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 he brought his family. That's right. That's right. What else did Noah bring with him? Uh, 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 he brought, he brought food. That's right. <coughs> when you get to the place where we've exhausted all the answers that the kids supply, we say, what else did Noah bring on the ark with him? When there's no other answers, we say, the thing Noah brought with him is sin. Noah carried sin with him into the ark, as did his wife, as did his children. So though God had moved to create this new beginning, we see humanity plagued by this very old thing. We see Noah toed him, toting with him murder in his own heart through sin, and we see the manifestation of this sin very quickly and very strangely. Look in verse 20 and 21 with me of Genesis chapter 9. And this isn't something that, to my knowledge, ever gets flannel graphed in a child's Sunday school room. Verse 20 of, Noah, of Genesis chapter 9, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. This takes time, by the way. This isn't something that happened in 15 minutes. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Now, if you think about Noah as the new Adam, this is a radical spin on being naked and unashamed. Noah has a new kind of nakedness and unashamedness in his tent, probably not a healthy kind. Now, there's neither condemnation nor explanation of Noah's behavior in this passage, not because there isn't condemnation or explanation, but, but, but again, just because it's not the point the author was making. The author's trying to show us the reality of sin being inside the ark and inside the new Adam. Noah's going to fail just like every man that came before him because Noah bears something inside of him that manifests itself in sinful, destructive, untrusting activity. And so whatever happened, that's the point that gets highlighted with Noah. And then whatever happens with his son Ham is even weirder. So weird that for the sake of, you know, your day, we didn't have it read to us. But like, look with me. I'm going to read it now. So I guess the sake of appropriateness is gone. Ham, maybe we did have this read, didn't we? This is where we ended. You know, it's a nice, nice way to end the passage. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, it's not entirely clear what Ham does here. What, what, uh, I think what is clear enough is Ham is not guilty of some of the madness and mayhem that he's accused of in sermons and biblical commentaries. You will regularly hear Ham accused of incestuous behavior. You'll regularly hear Ham accused of homosexual behavior. And there's even a group of people that tries to accuse Ham of 
castrating his father in some sort of like power play to be the father of all the nations moving forward, not his own father. I don't think that any of those things are going on. It's obvious that what goes on is sinful. It's obvious that what goes on dishonors God, dishonors Ham, and dishonors his father. But if we just read the language as plain as we can, and we take the sense of the word seeing, and we, we understand the nakedness of the father as it was used in the ancient world as an idiom to refer to the nakedness of the father and the mother together, I think the plainest reading of this text is Ham witnesses his parents being intimate. But again, the point isn't to make some weird scheme or conspiracy theory out of Ham's action. The point is to remind us that we're not in the garden anymore. Though this is a newly renewed beginning for humanity, humanity continues to live outside the garden and under the curse. And it's a helpful exhibition of or explanation of the kindness of God to make a covenant with humanity with this kind of stuff out in the clear open. Like, because God is making an everlasting covenant with all humanity in this chapter, in light of this action, and it's with this kind of sinful behavior on the table that we see the unbelievable mercy of God, the kindness of God, the infinite love of God, that he would make a covenant with people like this. He's already told us in the beginning of the chapter that he understands that the evil of humanity is bared up inside of us. Look at verse 21 of Genesis chapter 8. He says, hey, I know, I'm, I'm understanding that the heart of man, the intention of a man's heart is evil from his youth. God tells Noah and his family that, and then we see that in the span of the same chapter and the same generation. And it's in light of that grotesque display of the evil intentions of man, whatever was going on with Noah and whatever was going on with Ham, that we see the glory of the everlasting covenant that God makes. See, all this going on in Genesis 9, eating meat and the blood and the blood of men and the blood of animals and Noah drunk and naked in his tent and Ham doing whatever he did is the background for the, the, the covenant of God that is clearly in the foreground. And what we're, what we're intended to see is the glorious grace of God manifested in the covenant he makes with humanity. Look in verse 9 and 10. Genesis chapter 9. Then God says to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you. Which we were told in chapter 6, God said, I'm going to make this covenant with you, Noah. And now he does it. I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, with every living creature that's with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many came out of the ark, it's for every beast of the earth. So what we need to understand is this is a common grace covenant that God is making. This isn't about the salvation of all living things. God's saying, hey, I'm gonna manifest my grace to everything that's alive in this way despite the evil intentions of man's heart. Now, it's worth us spending a second on understanding what a covenant is 
Because covenant is not a word we use very often. Maybe some of you have like some kind of language in your HOA or something that talks about covenants. But in, in spite of like, if that's not the case, we don't use the word covenant hardly ever. We use the word contracts all the time. But contracts are different from covenants in, a, in, in at least one unique way. The word covenant is used 200 plus times in the Old Testament and Noah and all the original hearers of Genesis would have been very clear what a covenant was. A covenant at its most basic and general sense outlines a relationship between two groups of people. A contract defines what I'm gonna do for you or what you're gonna do for me and what payment will be exchanged. But a covenant defines relationships. Nations made covenants between one another and neighbors made covenants between one another. It's like, hey, I'm going to define the way we're going to relate to one another. And biblically speaking, covenants were based on loyalty and trust and faithfulness and love. So think about this. When God enters into a covenant with people, that relationship is now based on eternal loyalty, perfect and infinite trust, like the, the definition of holy love, grace and mercy, everything that we would base a covenant on, God does it perfectly because we fail our promises, right? We make promises and we fail to keep them. And God's saying, I'm not like you. My daughter, who some of you know my middle daughter, like 10 years ago, eight years ago, made a covenant with a friend at school. They didn't use that language. But the covenant that they made was each of them was gonna cut their own hair. So my daughter says, right, you're gonna cut your hair, and then after you cut your hair, I'm gonna cut my hair. And she watches her friend cut her hair and walks away. And I said to her, Lydia, what on earth were you doing? She's like, oh, I never intended to cut my hair at all. I just wanted to see London cut her hair. God says, I'm not like that. And by the way, I wanted my daughter to learn that collies keep their promises, so I cut her hair at home at school that night. God says, I'm not like a child that makes a covenant to manipulate you or makes a covenant and forgets about it. My covenants are infinitely and qualitatively different than the kind of covenants you make. And this is what we see happening with God, like perfect loyalty, eternal and perfect faithfulness, eternal and infinite love. He says, this is the way I relate to you. And, and the essence of his covenant is he's saying, I will never wipe humanity out again. Even though I know that you're sinful and every desire of your heart is bent opposite to the will of God. Like blessings in the scriptures come from taking God at his word, trusting God's promises, and receiving God's wisdom. Curses come from refusing to take God at his word, renouncing his promises, and believing that my wisdom is superior to his. And God says, I know that you're consistently going to renounce my wisdom, refuse to trust my promises, not hold fast to me for my provision, but even still, I will not universally wipe out humanity again. This is my promise. This is my vow. Tell every bird that ever lives. And you see here, he's not just making it to one man. He repeats in verse 10, in verse 12, in verse 16, in verse 17 of chapter 9. This is for everybody. This is for everyone who ever walks the earth. Tell them I will never destroy humanity again because of their wickedness. I'll never destroy the earth again because of humans' wickedness. Now there will be localized floods. 
There will be localized hurricanes. There will be localized tornadoes. There will be localized expressions of God's judgment over the wickedness of humanity. But never again, he says, never again will I wipe out the earth because of your wickedness. And he's not, he's not promising to save everyone. He's promising to hold back his judgment to create a world in which we can know his saving grace. This, this is a common grace covenant, but a beautiful one. And then he says, you guys are inclined to be forgetful, but I'm not. I'm not forgetful. I don't need reminders on stuff. Like I'm the kind of person that if I, if I know I need to have that thing with me, I put my keys with it because I'm gonna forget that thing. And I know that I can't get out of here without my keys, so I'm gonna put my keys with that. God's saying, hey, I don't need to put my keys with anything. I remember this perfectly. I keep this perfectly, but you struggle to remember. So I'm gonna give you a reminder. I'm gonna give you a reminder between you and me. And the glorious thing about that covenant is obviously a reminder to God because he's the one upholding the covenant. But he doesn't give us a sign because he's forgetful. He gives us a sign because we're forgetful. The great and esteemed high reverend Ben Hill came into my office when I was working on this sermon. And he jokingly said to me, how much time are you gonna spend on the rainbow? Mocking me because he knows like, a sermon on a rainbow is not the kind of thing I'm inclined to preach. And I said, slightly less than zero amount of time is what I'm planning on spending on the rainbow. And then Ben and I went out and ate lunch and I came back to my office late on a Thursday afternoon and read two sermons by two heroes of mine. One by Tim Keller, one by Charles Spurgeon, both of whom now are in the presence of Jesus. Both these guys preached sermons about the rainbow. And it utterly rocked my world to the point that I was like, oh, I made fun and said I didn't want to spend any time on the rainbow, but I actually want to preach an entire sermon on the rainbow. Can I tell you why? It's not a rainbow. I mean, we call it a rainbow as if that's what God says of like, hey, right next to the Care Bears in the sky, I'm going to hang my rainbow. And it's cutesy. But it's not. If you just look at the word, first of all, God doesn't say rainbow. Look in verse 12 of Genesis 9. He says, actually verse 13, he says, I've set my bow in the cloud. This doesn't require a sermon from Tim Keller or Charles Spurgeon. This just requires a dictionary. If you look up this word, this is a weapon. It's not a cutesy thing to... Or, you know, like, hang in the sky. God says, I'm hanging up my weapon. I, I have... I have altered ostensibly the refractory principles of water and light such that now when it rains you will be reminded I will not take up my weapon of judgment against humanity ever again. This wasn't a cutesy thing. This was an instrument of destruction. Every place this word occurs in the, New, in the Old Testament it's in the hands of somebody killing someone. And God says, hey, I want everyone to be reminded Anytime you see a storm, I've set my bow in the clouds. Meaning, there may be localized judgment, there may be massive rain, but I will never again wipe out humanity. Now, I didn't need Keller or Spurgeon for that, I have a dictionary. Where Keller and Spurgeon blew my mind is, they talk about the orientation of the bow. Because God could have changed the refractory principles of light however he wanted to, 
He set it such that the bow is pointing into heaven. He says, hey, don't miss the point. God wants us to be reminded that he will never again shoot the arrows of his wrath into humanity in the way he did in the days of Noah. But the good news of the gospel is he does shoot the arrows of his wrath into his son so that you and I don't have to receive them. Because when God judged all of humanity in the days of Noah, he wasn't wrong. It wasn't like he looks back on that and is embarrassed about those photos in his family album. He was righteous and just and holy and perfect to do that. So when God says, I will hold back my wrath from here on out, if we're thinking people, we have to go, wait a minute, point of order. If you hold back your wrath and you don't punish the evil intentions of man's hearts, how are you still just? Because a just God can't let it go. You and I let it go, but it's because we're fickle and sinful and we want other people to be like lack integrity with us. God can't do that. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter three that if God would have left all this stuff, just let it go, he'd be unjust. But that in order so he could be both just and the justifier of the ungodly, Paul says, he set forth his son to receive the arrows of his wrath so you and I don't have to. That's what God's preaching to us in the bow. Not, not that everyone is saved because of the bow. He's actually telling us the message of how we can be saved. That the only hope that you and I have is that the wrath of God would be received by God himself. Because if he doesn't receive it on our behalf, we have to. It's, it's, it's like how the universe is held in order. And the good news of Jesus is, he came into our world and lived the life that, we, that, that history has been crying out for. Where's the faithful one? Where's the one who will hear the word of God and hold fast to it? Where's one who will listen to the promises of the Father and trust him? His name's Jesus. He came into our world and lived a perfect life. He's the human that everyone's been longing for. And God, in his justice and his righteousness, unloaded the arrows of his wrath into the only perfect human that ever lived. So that you and I, evil though our intentions may be, could be treated as righteous. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, the word thanks seems hollow and thin. In moments like this, I'm just inclined to say, what must you be like, God, that you think up stories of this kind of infinite mercy so that we could live out our lives and experience your glory and your grace? It's also funny that we don't see rainbows on clear days. We only see rainbows in the midst of storms. So it's entirely possible we walk out of this room today and see the visible reminder that you won't pour out your wrath universally on humanity again. And with the upticked bow, we can be reminded that you poured out your wrath on your son for us. Help us to trust him. Help us to love him. 
Help us to hear his words and hold fast to them. I pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.